Someone, uh, someone said, did you, make the com- did you really make the comment that um, we, should, we should sing in other languages? To which I said, yes, I did. And he said, well, I've seen your outline from Bible study, and I don't agree. And I said, okay, that's fine. The point is, um, there's a new demographic entering the church. And as I said very clearly last week, this doesn't mean that we do away with all the old stuff that we've had before. In fact, I'm always struck on a Sunday if we sing nine pieces of music, and believe me, I know we don't always get through all nine of them because at 745, there are only 90 people there. But on a normal Sunday, if you sing every piece of music in the bulletin, and I'm talking hymns now, the balance is roughly five to four, old stuff to new stuff. So um, we're trying to find a proper balance between all of that. We are singing some Gregorian chant, and some of the Latin does have a different language. And his response was, we shouldn't sing anything with a different language. My response was, did you grow up going to the German service, and did you know German? Yes, I went, and no, I didn't know it. <laughs> okay? So, and part of this is, it's not about just doing another language, because that's interesting, although it is interesting. Singing in another language um, suddenly takes you back 2,000 years, roughly. Um, and, and we have a tendency in the Lutheran Church to measure our time in decades, or you know, maybe centuries, but certainly not many of them. Many of, many of us often think that the church really began either in 1517 when Luther nailed the 95 Theses or in you know, 1847 when they got off the boat in Missouri. Well, the church began you know, in the temple worship of two century, you know, 2000 B.C., and they worshiped a certain way, and we've inherited those practices. And what young people especially are drawn to, drawn towards, is... Um, re-engaging those most historic or ancient practices. So, and you see that in your outline here. They see Latin as beautiful, as merciful, as spirituality, and as joining them to a bigger community that's bigger than the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, okay? So, uh, with all of that, do you have any questions about that outline? Yes, Peter. Yes. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Yeah, there is a, that a Thomas Aquinas hymn, if you don't know, that's a very, very famous hymn. Um, it was written by St. Thomas Aquinas in, in the 15th century um, for the Corpus Christi feast. Um, and Corpus Christi, of course, is the feast of the body of Christ. And he wrote that hymn, and, and there is that one stanza where it says, you know, Jesus is not only reenacting, but bringing to fulfillment the Passover feast. And oftentimes we think, you know, Jewish, well, let me, let me ask you this. Have you ever been to a Seder meal? Good, Okay. Um, how many of you at the end of the Seder meal had the Eucharist? Bad. Bad, 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 bad. Yeah. Bad, 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 bad. Because uh, the Seder meal is what the Jews celebrate, and we celebrate the Eucharist. But Jesus is, remember, the hinge between these two worlds. And so Jesus is the last person ever who could celebrate a Seder meal and have the Eucharist at the end of it. Um, we now have the Eucharist, but the Eucharist is not, it doesn't abolish the Passover. In fact, I would say it fulfills the Passover. Why? You have, a, as we say of Jesus, he's both the priest and the victim, which is, which is a much stronger word than sacrifice. When you think of sacrifice, you think, oh, Jesus is a sacrifice for my sins. When you say he's the victim, that means something was done to him. And on the altar, he is both priest and victim, as the hymn says, himself the victim and himself the priest. Okay, so yeah, exactly right. But you see, you find, here's the thing, if you would never sing that Aquinas hymn from the 15th century, you would never have that imagery because that's not in any other, other hymns we've got, right? And there's something cool about saying, at least I think there is, maybe you don't, I think there's something cool about saying, 
for the past 500 years, Christians have been singing not only that hymn, but that hymn to that tune. That is very cool. Because you know in, in our own tradition, we can keep hymns, but we can change tunes. There's something very cool about saying for 500 or 600 or 800 years, or in most Gregorian chant, a thousand years, we've been singing these hymns to these tunes. It connects you to a bigger reality, and that's what the church is all about. Anything else about the diagram? Yeah. Oh, yeah, most definitely. The question is, did Christ die for our sins or was he killed by our sins? The answer is both. Um, in fact, as Luther says, on the cross, Jesus becomes the chief sinner. So Jesus, this is Luther's language, not mine. Jesus is the chief adulterer. Jesus is the chief murderer. Every sin you can ever imagine, Jesus doesn't just bear in his body. He actually becomes the sinner who's committed those sins. And that's an interesting way of thinking about the person of Christ. We often think, oh, he took our place. Isn't that nice? No, he didn't only take our place. He actually became the sinner in place of you and me. Yeah. Yeah, right. No, that, oh, I, I shouldn't have said wrong because I love you, Val. Uh, and this will get reported to someone. Uh, no, it wasn't wrong. I mean, here's the thing. There's a, no, it, was it best? That might be a better question. Maybe not because sort of then our, our lines get blurred a bit. The, the fine line between Passover and the Eucharist gets blurred and we sort of say, isn't this great? We're recreating what Jesus did at the Passover. And so we pass around dates and olives and isn't this fun? Um, was it wrong? No. Was it best? Maybe, maybe not. Um, where it gets especially dicey, though, is where people, I, I, was at a, I was a summer vicar at a place where they had a Passover Seder meal in the basement. And then at the very end, the pastor stands up and, and consecrates the elements and then just passes them to both sides. And you were supposed to give it to the person next to you. I mean, that, that's very odd because, one, then, you know, it sort of puts everybody on the same level. And, two, you don't know where the Passover stops and the Eucharist begins. And they're not one and the same. That's good. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Which is, but you got, you got to remember, the point of the church is not reenactment. The point of the church is representation, which is very different. Reenactment is what your Reformed friends do at the Eucharist. Representation is what we do. The Christ who is on the cross is now represented on the altar. And that's a different thing. So you kind of blur those lines. Yes, Lindsay. Yeah. Good question. I think you've asked the only question in Bible study I couldn't answer. <laughs> One time you asked a question and I, and I thought, I don't actually know what the answer to that would be. The question is, is there a hierarchy to sin? Because you know how we often talk, which is a sin is a sin is a sin. Um, which isn't actually the case if you read the book of James, or if you read the book of, um, is it First John? Where does it say some sin leads to death and some sin does? First John. It's very clear in First John there is a hierarchy to sin. Um, and that's where, that's where the church has traditionally talked about mortal sin and venial sin. Mortal sin is sin that kills you, and venial sin is sin that can be repented of. And so we often say, a sin's a sin's a sin. Um, and then we take Luther's great line where he says, sin boldly, and we say, isn't this great? We take that as license to sort of do whatever we want. There is a hierarchy to sin. Some sins will kill you and some sins won't. If you don't believe me, just read First John. So uh, Jesus, Jesus is a mortal sinner on the cross. It's damnable sin. That's why he dies. Yeah, at the end of the day, every sin can be forgiven, um, but some are harder to come free of. Because remember, what is it, what's the cause for a mortal sin? A mortal sin is full knowledge, you know what you're doing, full consent, so you're not forced into it, and also a breaking of one of the Ten Commandments. 
Well, see, that's, <laughs> that's, for another, that's for another time. No, actually, I don't believe that. The question was, can you not be forgiven of suicide? No, actually, and the answer to that is Luther's great pastoral letter. He wrote to a young, a young wife whose husband had committed suicide. And um, let me pause and say, I had a professor in college at a, at a Lutheran university, very famous guy, who after 9-11 said all the people who jumped from the top roof were damned because they committed suicide. I don't actually believe that. Um, and Luther has the answer where Luther says, uh, he writes to this woman, your, wife, your husband went out into the woods and he was taken over by robbers. Who, and the robbers, of course, were the devil and his minions. And the robbers actually took control of his body and made him do stuff to himself he didn't want to do. And so there is a sense in which people can not be mentally stable enough to make the right decision and they commit suicide. That's, you know what? That's not a damnable thing. And at the same time, people can be so overcome by the power of the devil that he actually takes your hand and does something you don't want done. So not every suicide is considered unforgivable. And if you don't believe me, there is the Luther answer, which is interesting because we often, there was a, a big, have you ever seen the Luther movie, the one that was put out about five or six years ago? Um, you know, the one where he's wearing the chasuble and he's walking up, up and down the aisle preaching and everybody thinks, oh, that's how Luther preached, up and down the aisle with the people. All you have to go is Luther's church in Wittenberg and there's a huge pulpit, right? But Luther's walking up and down the aisle like he's a, you know, an evangelical from the 21st century, and isn't this great? But in the movie, he buries a kid who had committed suicide. And there was great outrage over this part of the film because many Lutherans said that sin cannot be forgiven. Therefore, Luther shouldn't have buried that kid in the movie. Yeah, exactly. So there's some part of that. Yes, Karen. Uh, depends on why you're committing suicide. This would be like, perfect knowledge, full consent, breaking one of the Ten Commandments, or, on the other hand, overcome by the power of the devil, mentally unstable, um, an inability to make right decisions. That would be a different thing, and that wouldn't be, um, that wouldn't be you denying the Holy Spirit. That would be the devil denying the Holy Spirit. We expect that from the devil, not from you. Yeah, that's right. Uh, good question. I think, it, I think it's a referral to both, but there's no place in Scripture where it says Judas is damned. Uh, and in fact, if you read sort of, if you read many of the of the ancient texts, dogmatic textbooks that talk about how Christ deals with sinners, many of them will say, even even of hell. This is interesting. We can't say hell is empty, but we can't say hell is full. So, is there a hell? Yeah, there's a hell. Um, is it full? We have no idea. We don't know how Jesus works with sinners, and we don't know how Jesus works with sinners um, at the hour of our death. So um, is, Judas, is Judas in heaven? I hope so. This was the great Fred Needner line where he said, we finally forgiven Judas when we begin to name our children after him again. Isn't that a great line? Because it, we always, there are two people in Scripture we always get upset with. Judas, how could you betray the Son of Man? Well, just look in the mirror, man. <laughs> you know, and the other one is, who else do we always get upset with? Judas and? Well, Adam maybe. I wasn't thinking that far back. I was thinking more about the time frame with Judas. Who else do we get upset with? Pilate, yeah, and I'll think Christian church. We get upset with Peter. Oh, Peter, see, he could never be the first pope. He denied Jesus three times. Well, you know, here's the thing. You all deny Jesus. Yeah, exactly. I find comfort in Peter. I actually find a, a comrade, you know. So partly we, we, take our, we take our frustrations out on people in the Bible because they're easy targets and they can't answer for themselves now. All that's for 
you know, four weeks from now when we talk about baptism or life, or as we go through the new member class down here, please come back to that. So let's save all these. Uh, but I did just kill 15 minutes. Pastor Weed felt that is your number one rule of pastoral care. If you don't have anything to talk about, kill time. Exactly. So um, learn it early and often, buddy. It's going gonna, it's gonna to pan out for you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. And, and I do want to pause there because I do want to actually get to the outline. Part of the problem is we live in America. We don't live in the first century. And we're not Jews. We're Westerners. So we're sort of the products of Greek culture in many respects, the Latin West. Um, and so we have a whole different understanding of how things operate. We need to talk about that. Well, yeah, exactly. Exactly right. The scriptures even talk a different way. Now, to the outline, finally. <laughs> no need to laugh. You're not a member yet. Don't laugh. <laughs> Just kidding. To the outline, this is, this is sort of the normal course of the Christian life. Eden, chaos, alone and unloved. That's the, the therefore, you know, the result of chaos, alone and unloved. And we talked all about this. Adam is on the outskirts of the garden. He's all by himself. And who stands in front? You know, not the chubby cherubs from, uh, you know, precious moments, but actually an angel bearing a flaming sword. What then is the draw of people who are alone and unloved? At least today, and again, this was different 30 years ago, and it may be different in another 30 years. The draw today is beauty, community, spirituality, and justice, okay? And we gave, we gave examples for all of these. As Doug pointed out, at the end of the day, everything goes back to the Eucharist. But it is true, these do have a broader meaning than even just the Eucharist. Beauty is anything that bears an incarnational presence. So you'll be surprised when John Kleinig comes here in a couple months. He has a whole section in his new book. What's his new book called? Yes, it's called something. I don't know. It's got a great name. Last time I looked at it. Just keep going, man. Uh, where, he says, where he says, when I pray, I often will look at a crucifix or an icon because they bear a divine presence. That's not the way we often think. But, you know, when John Kleine comes with an Australian accent, you all are going to say, oh, that's great. <laughs> Beauty, community, koinonia, right, being together, which is broader than just the Eucharist. It's about being forgiven together and bearing each other's sins. I said it in the sermon. We all pick up our crosses, and we realize that the cost is worth it. Spirituality, this is the rhythm to the Christian life. Justice and mercy, making things right, and then giving people also what they don't deserve, giving them more than they ever could have hoped for or expected. All of that then comes to a head in the liturgy of the church. And then you have to ask yourself, you know, why has this, I think, no, so let me, let me pose my assertion. I'll give you my assertion, and then I'll say, why has this happened? I think in many respects, most people can agree with a lot of this. It doesn't matter where you're coming from. If you're at Wheaton College Church, if you're a contemporary worship Lutheran, if you're a Roman Catholic, it doesn't matter. Most people can agree with all these things. They can see it. We were in Eden. Things went chaotic. People are alone and unloved. Yeah, we can see the appeal to these things in real time. But this right here is the sticky point, the liturgy. Why is, it the li- why is the liturgy the sticking point? Well, one reason is, folks, some folks don't do it. Okay? Some folks don't do it. And if somebody asks you, we always tell our new members this, but if somebody ever asks you, why do you love the liturgy, or why do you go to church with the liturgy, what would you say? Well, that's, yes, good. That isn't what I expected you to say, but that's actually good. So, um... Uh, I know what to expect. And also then, on your deathbed, um, you'll know what to say. Right? You ever been with somebody? My Abby's grandmother had Alzheimer's disease, and for like the, past, the last two years of her life, 
you know, barely recognized family. But when you would start the liturgy, she knew every part. Now, if you had changed the liturgy every week, what would happen on her deathbed? Where are we? It'd be mixed up again. So there's something about it teaches you what to expect and then also what to say. I mean, nobody, the worst place you could, the, the, the worst time to ever be alone and in love is on your deathbed. On your deathbed, you need a pastor there and you need the liturgy there. So what to expect, what to say, and then what we always say to our new members, it makes the best disciples. Now, this doesn't mean that other forms of worship don't make disciples. What it means is, if you look around the world, what makes the best disciples is the liturgy. If somebody could come up with something better than that, we would try it. But they haven't yet. Okay? But part of the problem is people don't do it, or what's the second problem? If people do it, they change it as part of it. Yeah, this falls into my broader category. They don't do it well. Exactly. <laughs> what's that? The old, you know, see, you, you, you actually tell, tell something about you when you said the old blue hymnal, because for some of you, you would say the old red hymnal. See, I knew you were a young guy. 30? Oh, before the red one. Oh, wow. I, that was before the printing press, wasn't it? <laughs> Kidding. Five and 15. Yeah, if you, if you ask anybody, yeah, five and 15. You all know it. Five was... Five was um, non-communion, and 15 was the Eucharist, right? Yeah, exactly. So there you go. See, now that, that tells you something about our culture. I'm, I'm not kidding now. Tell, Mueller's back there. He's getting all excited. He heard 5 and 15, so he came down to hear the rest of the Bible study. All right. So either people don't do it, or they don't do it well. So what I want to talk about today is, in the next five minutes, um, we do have the liturgy, but what does it mean to do the liturgy well? What does it mean to do the liturgy well? Because here's the thing. You're going to go to other places where it may be done differently. That doesn't mean it's not done well. But you need to know at the end of the day that the way you make disciples is to do the liturgy and to do the liturgy well. I would at least, I would at least pose the question, would part of the reason why we went away from the liturgy for so many years in Lutheranism, and it's still present today, not because people dislike the liturgy, but because the liturgy wasn't done well. I would say that's part of our reason for going away from it. People just, it just wasn't done well, right? So what does it mean to do the liturgy well? And it does involve you. It's not just about us. Yes, Peter. Yep. That's true. I agree with everything you just said. However, people still have a sense of, of, of reverence and respect. I mean, if you meet the president, what are you going to do? You're not going to walk up and say, hey, Barack, good to see you, man. What are you going to do? Yeah, what are you going to say? Mr. President, it's nice to meet you, right? Yeah, right. I mean, the big faux pas was when Michelle Obama met the queen and she did what? Touched her back, right? Yeah, so people still, even in today's society, people still have a sense of reverence and respect. When I go to the hospital, talk about reverence and respect. One, they always call me father, and I say, yes, my child. <laughs> no, they always call me father. And if you're a pastor, you can get in anywhere. I can go in anywhere. I just walk in like you own the place, and you say, very respectfully, I'm here to visit so-and-so. I know it's after hours in the ICU. I know they're in the recovery room and the family can't come, but I need to get in. Okay? So we, I, I agree people have lost that. We have a very informal sense about society. But in certain places, even the most informal people know how to be respectful. Yeah. Exactly. Good, so the first thing to do the liturgy well would be reverence. Yes, 
Yes, exactly. So I want to say two things. I want to agree with that, which is reverence is then a connection to history. But remember, reverence is not rigidity. And this is often the problem that's made among very liturgical churches. Reverence is considered rigid. And you might think we're rigid. I actually, I know people who are rigid. Believe me, we're not rigid, okay? But reverence is often, often confused with rigidity. And what happens when things are rigid? There feels like there's a disconnect between you and between us, right? So reverence without being rigid. And that does connect you to um, a broader history. In fact, even the way pastors give the salutation, the way they bless you, the way we consecrate the elements, all of that goes back hundreds, if not thousands of years. Okay? What else to do the liturgy well? Reverence? What else? Uh, Order? So order, that's good. Yes, yeah, you're reenacting the drama. You're reenacting the whole story from creation to the fall to redemption to life everlasting. What did you say, Lindsay? Yes, it takes education. So you need a toolbox, and that's what we'll do when we get next door. What else? That's all? Come on, there's got to be more than that. What else? Yes. Yeah, so the one thing we will never do around here is what's called proof texting or um, sort of picking and choosing your own text. So you'll never have a pastor say, like, here's the thing, this morning I would have loved to have found a different text to preach on. Unless you hate your father and your mother and everybody else in your family and your dog too. I mean, it would have been great to pick a text like, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? But because I'm not above and beyond the text and I'm not above and beyond the liturgy, what happens? I'm a full servant of the liturgy, so I preach on the text that's given to me. Although it's always interesting when something's blown up around here and a text comes up that people think you know, was picked for them, and they say, you picked that for me, didn't you? <laughs> And I say, no, uh, Paul Grimm and the worship committee in St. Louis picked that for you. No, you picked that for me. I'm like, no, really, this is the text that came up. I'm, I'm not kidding. Uh, we've never proof text. We don't proof text. So being a, be, let's just say, yeah, just being a servant of the church. And that means we preach on what's been given, and you receive what's been preached. What else, though? There's more to, there's more to, yes, good. Tell, tell me more about that. Yes. Good. Exactly right. So the old way um, to, that the pastor would stand was called ad orientum, facing, being oriented toward the east. Now, of course, our building isn't facing the east, so I'd have to stand sideways if we were going to do that. Um, but, but then the, the new way is called versus populum, toward the people. And um, that's a product, of course, of the Second Vatican Council in the 1970s. But it does do certain things for our worship like it makes us a back and forth between the congregation and the pastor. Okay? Now, I once heard an interesting description of why the altar should be fixed, which, if you've ever been upstairs, there is a fixed altar back there. It was the old altar here, and now it's been cut in half. <laughs> um, so, ha- so there are only two and a half crosses on the top. There were five. But the reason you had a fixed altar was, if I'm facing the altar and you're behind me, what do you know about me? My hands, my feet, and my voice. You're not saying, oh, wow, his hair is a little messed up today, or isn't that? So in some sense, we've always talked about, you know, your pastor by his hands, his feet, and his mouth. Facing the, facing the back wall actually does that for you. Okay, what else? Good. That's exactly right. I mean, I find out even with my, own, with my own study, or the women's Bible study, I'd never read Jude. I mean, I had, but, you know, you never preached, and you never, and you read it, and you're like, this is fantastic. 
So yeah, so there's an extension of the liturgy. What else? Come on, what else makes a liturgy done well? Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah, not isolated. It's not just like we come to the liturgy on Sunday and with the rest of our life is a separate deal, which is why, you know, it's always interesting to, to me to see how many folks come to the altar and are sort of visibly um, upset is not the right word, but visibly moved by the liturgy. And what that means is that's, that's good news because the liturgy should apply to every aspect of your life. Okay? What else? Keep going. Yes. Yes. The, yeah. How many of you can do the whole liturgy without your bulletin besides the hymns? Good. That's what we want. Exactly. And that's part of the reason, as an aside, part of the reason we do Tazay. I know some people say, I, one guy says to me, I hate that taser stuff. I'm like, taser? <laughs> I hate that taser stuff. Don't stop singing that. Yes. But part, of the, well, but part of the reason we sing that Tazay stuff is because it's repetitive, and that's especially good for children. I mean, my daughter will come home today, and the rest of the day, you know, thanks to Mr. Mueller and thanks to, thanks to Peter, she knows every different iteration of the Alleluia verse. She knows all these Tazay pieces. And it's not the kind of thing where she just starts singing them. It's the kind of thing where if I start humming it, she can sing the rest of it. That's what you want for your kids, Right? And so the repetition needs to be seen as a gift and not a burden. Yes, Jack. Yep. Yep. Uh, that was another thing. Uh, unfortunately, you can chalk up to my arrival. Um, I just said, I just finally said, I don't know why we do matins on Sunday. Yeah, well, we had matins till I first arrived. When I first came, we had, and when I was on Vicarage, we had matins. Matins was always the every other Sunday at 9 a.m. And the reason given for not having the Eucharist was... Two reasons. It's too much work for the altar guild, and um, that was basically it. <laughs> okay, so one reason. And it was kind of like, we're a Eucharistic community. So matins is not a Sunday service. There are certain services that are allotted for Sundays, the chief service, which is always the Eucharist. Every sacramental church in America, you know, by canon law, has the Eucharist on Sunday. Matins is a prayer office. Matins is what you ought to be praying on your own every day. That's why it doesn't take that long. So we went away from it because we wanted to encourage people to say it on their own and also to bring the Eucharist as the, as the defining feature of St. John's Sunday worship. The great line, Ray Newberg, may his soul rest in peace. Uh, he was up once up here, and he was of the generation that said we shouldn't have the Eucharist every Sunday. Some of you grew up in that generation where you said we don't have it every week. Why didn't you have it every week? You might get bored, yeah, or... Take it for granted, right? Yeah, exactly. How many of you only eat steak once a year because you might take it for granted? Yeah, exactly. When we're with the new members, I give them a different example, but you can all think about that. Okay. <laughs> no, but the point is, you don't just do you don't just do you don't do the stuff you love in life only once a year because you might take it for granted. You do it as often as you possibly can because that's a gift, right? Same thing with the liturgy. Same thing with the Eucharist. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. See, now you're, pre you're pressing me just like Val pressed me. <laughs> Val's going to go back and call her home pastor and say, well, my pastor said. He's dead. Okay. <laughs> Thank God. Okay. No, is that, is that bad? No, it's not bad. Is it best? No, it's not best because it, it mixes two services that shouldn't be together like that. But here's the point. I do want to wrap up eventually. <laughs> here's the thing. If you can get the liturgy right, you'll get everything else right. Okay? The liturgy needs to be reverent and not rigid. It needs to have an order. You need to know what's cooking. This is why we need to talk about how do you make the sign of the cross. 
It need, we all need to be servants of the church. You can't complain when the church gives us a text, and I can't complain. It needs to be participatory, back and forth between you and me, but also between you and each other, and not isolated from the rest of life. And I would push you even further and say, two things you didn't mention, but I'll mention them for you. The music needs to be spectacular. And thank God that we have Jonathan, but the music needs to be spectacular. You've been to churches where either the music is bad or great hymns, but they're played at what pace? A mighty fortress. Yeah, it's like you're alive. Let's sing. Let's go, right? And that's, and that's different for every community. The place I served a summer vicarage at, it was all people who were over the age of 70, and frankly, they couldn't keep up, so it had to be slower. It's just true. No, I'm just, I'm, this is realistic. This is real life. That's not our problem. The other thing is, and I'm surprised you didn't mention it. Maybe you're trying to be kind. The preaching needs to be good, right? If preaching, if you have, you know, 15 minutes or 10 minutes, or in my case, seven minutes, every week where you say that's a wasted seven minutes, well, that just, that puts a big, that puts a big break in the divine service. It needs to be seamless. It needs to have its own rhythm. And you need to be moved from one thing to another. And so you go out on a full blast moment, having just received the Eucharist, Go out into the world and do some good, as the, as the Roman Catholic Church says, and they get it right. Ite missa est. Go the mission. Right? The liturgy pushes you out to mercy, to witness. And when we all live like this, liturgically, mercifully, and witnessing to the ends of the earth, we're back to Eden. It make sense? Okay, we're all getting tattoos. Um, next week, let me tell you this. Next week, no Bible study because it's July 4th weekend. Uh, no Bible study. When you come back down, I do want to run through the new member class, so I hope you're up for that. Uh, some of you haven't been around for it. Some of you have taken it a long time ago. Come back, and we'll do that for a few weeks, and then hopefully we'll be in, okay? All right, Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you very much.